I think I've realized, along with perhaps everyone else, just how much people matter. You know, the sort of physicality of being with people, the hug, the body language, the being able to talk to each other without the delay of Zoom. I've also thought about how much nature matters. Hello and welcome to Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design, how we live, the clothes we choose, and how we organize our space. I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, a certified KonMari consultant and personal stylist. I'm here to guide you on your journey to live a happy, fulfilled life. Every Tuesday, you'll get new insight on what it means to live well, plus actionable tips. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. Our guest today is Jonathan Drury. John is multi-passionate in the fullest sense of the word. His interests and expertise span everything from engineering to science and education, documentary filmmaking and writing books, to being on the boards of Raspberry Pi and The Eden Project. He's also an ambassador for the Woodland Trust and WWF. And you'll hear how plants gave John a literal taste for history, hint hint, as we chat about his latest book, Around the World in 80 Plants. John, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much. <laughs> and speaking with you reminds me of how long I've actually been in this country. I can't believe it's been 18 years since I moved to London. And you're one of the first people I met in a non-academic setting. And you also happen to be married to my guest from episode nine, a novelist Tracy Chevalier. So it's lovely to have you and Tracy and your whole family as part of my London life. Thank you. 18 years has gone by quickly, but I think the past year has gone even faster. I think time dilates during lockdown. It definitely does. It's been such a strange year. And funnily enough, in terms of location, I've ended up where you started your journey. So your roots are in Twickenham, a leafy part of southwest London and part of Richmond-upon-Thames, which is known, I think, as London's greenest borough. It seems like a great place to be a kid with nature on your doorstep and the River Thames and all those trees and parks and Kew Gardens. Yeah, it was a great place to grow up. You know, our mothers used to just bung us all out of the door in the morning and then expect to see us in the evening. And uh, in the meantime, there was, you know, all that space along the river and Kew Gardens, as you say, and Richmond Park and so on, big areas that we could kind of go and run around in. And I remember my parents often taking me to Kew as a child. And I think that that sort of love of plants and exotic plants has stayed with me all my life, really. Well, it seems a natural transition from that environment to botany and the natural world playing an important part in your professional life. Yes, my parents used to take us on walks when we were very little, every week really. We'd either go to Richmond Park or Kew, and they sort of jollied my brother and me around Kew by, you know, obviously sweet treats here and there, but um, <laughs> also by telling us stories about the different plants. And one of the things my father used to do was feed me bits of them. Sometimes there were very, you know, obvious things to eat, like herbs, and other times they were less obvious. I remember him giving me a lick of the seed capsule of an opium poppy once, and uh, my my teacher was most concerned about that when I told her. <laughs> <laughs> I assume you didn't feel any effects of it. 
Well, I can feel the sort of slight numbness on my tongue. Oh, really? And nothing else. But years later, when I was a trustee at the Royal Botanic Gardens queue, they handed around some opium capsules to us trustees who were all wearing suits and ties and things. And mine was just exuding a little bit of this sort of white latex. And it was a, an impulse and a reflex. So I just licked it. <laughs> and all these other people were saying, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> and it, suddenly I was a child again. Oh, that's amazing. Are there any other um, strange and unusual things that your parents encouraged you to taste in nature then? Uh, yes, also at Kew Gardens. I remember my father giving me a little square of a leaf of a plant called Diffenbachia, which is known in America as dumb canes. And it's actually quite a poisonous plant. And he used this in order to tell me the story of slavery, really, because dumb canes had been used as a punishment plant in the deep south of the United States. It was used to try and subdue enslaved people. And so I remember, I think I was about nine, my father telling me the story of this plant and giving me a tiny little piece to taste. He said that it would hurt, and it did. And it's got these tiny sort of microscopic crystals inside each cell. They're needle-shaped and allow the poison in the plant to be accelerated through the mucous membranes of the mouth into your body. I remember that was a lesson that stuck with me, again, all my life, really. That's amazing. And it's a wonderful way to package history as well. I know when I was growing up, history was never really one of my favorite subjects, just because in the context in which I experienced it, it was more of that dry sort of memorizing of events and battles and all sorts of things that were hard to relate to. I think it's all in the presentation, so it's a nice segue to the new book that you have coming out. I love that you've taken such a different approach to history with Around the World in 80 Plants, combining those stories and plant science and creepy, unusual things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've always found history, like yourself, quite difficult to remember and to engage with. And it means when people tell me things, I've got nothing to hang it on, I've got nowhere to put it. When people tell me scientific ideas, because I've got a sort of grounding in science, I find that a lot easier. And so I, I wanted to write something that would be accessible to people who had either come through history or through science or were interested in culture or folklore, that be things that were familiar to them in each story, but would also be really surprising so that there'd be something that was accessible to them that they could pin everything else on, but there'd be enough in there that would be a real shocker uh, uh, that they would enjoy. That's wonderful. I think that's exactly what I needed when I was a child as well to help me engage. Do you think there's any kind of direct path from your father talking about slavery for example, in Dumkane, or where did that idea initially come from, do you think? I'm sure it came from my parents because, you know, they had complementary interests in plants. You know, my father from a botanical point of view, my mother more from a kind of human stories point of view, but they were both absolutely captivated by the beauty of plants. And I think just as with art, you often need someone to point out the good bits to look at so that you can start to appreciate I think I felt the same way about plants, really, that, you know, like many other people, I probably started out being a bit plant blind. And then they helped me to see, you know, they'd say, well, look at the patterning on that and look, you know, just feel this leaf. And doesn't that have an amazing scent? And I wonder why it's got that 
scent, which, you know, to us might seem like something rotting, but why has the plant evolved that way? And they would constantly ask these questions alongside pointing out the beautiful shapes and colours and patterns and scents and so on. So I I think it, it was absolutely a direct line from them to my interest as an adult in plants. On the way, I took this long detour through engineering and television program making and online and all sorts of other things, and then have finally come back full circle to plants. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how that happens. I know you have one of those biographies that's hard to process, I think, simply due to the sheer volume of things you've done. One of the things that I rail against, I suppose, in uh, modern life is the way that everyone needs to be somehow compartmentalized. Everyone needs to be described in two words. Oh, you're a marketing yeah. expert. Oh, you're a, you're a technologist. Oh, you're a plant person. And, you know, it wasn't always like that. There was a time when people were encouraged to be interested in several things or adjacent fields. And for me, I think part of the beauty of life is what happens in the juxtapositions between things. So for me, the exciting things happen on the boundaries, either between people or between communities or between ideas. So I'm much more interested in not being pigeonholed into one thing. Yes, I do some environmental work and yes, I'm interested in plants, but I'm also interested now in history and in in science and physics and in engineering. And to me, these are all connected and it's the connections which are exciting. I remember the first time I heard that Steve Jobs quote about connecting the dots going backwards. I felt some comfort as well since I've had a diverse career too. Yeah, I mean, you started in music and now you're doing all sorts of things with design and interiors and personal branding. And, you know, it's amazing how these things go off in different directions, isn't it? You know, and and one of the things that I always tell young people when they're starting out is, yes, it's good to have a plan, but your life won't follow it. (laughs) (laughs) So you should be open to the opportunities that life gives you. Yes, I think that's a wonderful way of looking at it. And Do you think that there's any kind of societal change in how people view that with portfolio careers being more acceptable, I think, and maybe encouraged instead of staying for 30 years in one profession? It's true that people are having uh, more and more different roles. But I think that it is very difficult unless you have some sort of personal wealth or stability or somewhere that you can be where you don't have to kind of worry about the rent every month. It's very difficult otherwise to try things that might not pay off. You know, one of the things that I've been sort of terribly lucky with is that, first of all, I got a job when I left university that I thought was the one that I wanted. And and so I was very pleased about that. And that paid the rent for a while. And then once I was in the BBC doing my engineering thing, they had a sort of system of internal attachments, they called them, where I could go and try something quite different, but still keep my job. And so within the BBC, I then went off to try television directing. And because I had experience with theatre when I was at university and at school, you know, that actually worked out quite well. And if I'd have been in some other organisations, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. And then later in my career, I was running BBC Online and had an offer from another company. I wanted to do it because I'd been all my career in the BBC. and yet. You know, I felt a bit difficult about taking the risk because we just had a child and, 
you know, all of that stuff having to support and all the rest of it. And I remember the BBC at the time said, look, you know, go off for up to two years, come back if you want to, we'll keep your job open for you or something similar. And that ability to go off and take a risk and try something was the most fantastic luxury. As an employer, I've always tried to be that person who would allow employees to do that. And I think that if you've grown up in an environment without resources, you know, if, if you come from a poor family, that is a huge disadvantage that you have in life compared with other people who can go and try something for a bit and see whether it works out. And if it doesn't, they can try something else. And all the while, the roof over their head and their meals are being paid for. You know, I think that's a really fantastic opportunity that many people are missing. And I I think it's, it's very hard. It's very true. And I have even more respect for the BBC than I did before. I think it's fantastic that they enabled that. And yeah, I mean, you're completely right. It does make it harder. Although... In a very poorly paying (laughs) profession, I did manage to do that. It's just you don't have any savings. And I remember times when I didn't even have enough in my bank account to pay for tea or something like that when I was out and about. It is harder. I mean, you have to live on the edge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think it's especially difficult in things like music and the arts or being a writer or what have you. You know, if if you do very well, then you can do very well. But most people don't. And to go off and take the risk of doing something which might be enjoyable, but may not be the thing that you can make your living from, when you've already got a job that kind of pays the bills, but isn't really the perfect thing for you. I think that takes an awful lot of courage. On a parental level, when kids are sort of working out what they want to do, I think that parents have a big job there to encourage their kids to try things. The easiest thing in the world is to take the first thing you're offered. But there might be something else where you'd either be completely brilliant at it or you'd enjoy it a whole lot more. And helping lots and lots of people find those things It's just going to be better for society, isn't it? It's going to be better for the world. One of the things that I suppose stands in the way of that is if people feel that money is absolutely the most urgent thing. And different societies deal with this in different ways. So if you come from a Scandinavian country, there's a much bigger safety net in those countries and in those societies than there would be, for example, in the United States. And The fact that there's a safety net, meaning, you know, if you're out of work, you're not going to go hungry, you'll still have a roof over your head. It may not be absolute luxury, but you're going to survive and you'll be fine. And that makes an enormous difference to people's behavior, because it means that you can try more things, you can try things outside your own sort of comfort zone much more readily than if you're in a place where you think, I have to have this job, I have to have the health insurance that goes with it, which means I can't leave my job and go to a different one. It sort of curtails people's, it shuts down their horizons. So I think there's a lot that different societies can do to operate in different ways to make it more congenial to try new things. That's very true. And even on a kind of more granular level, the people in your immediate circle have a huge um, impact on how adventurous you might feel or how much of a safety net you feel you need. (laughs) I think if you're surrounded by all sorts of freelance types who've always lived on the edge, maybe 
you're more likely to uh, be a little bit adventurous. I guess it could go in either direction, but uh, yes, I suppose you are, and I, I think what I would love to see is I don't think that the state should pay for a luxurious lifestyle for everyone without them working, because I think you get too many freeloaders who would just do nothing. <laughs> I might be one of them, but I think that I would, <laughs> I would absolutely want everyone to know in a civilized society that they'll be at least supported with the absolute basics. In other words, healthcare, enough food to eat, and a roof over your head. It may not be luxury, it may not be perfect, but you're not going to be homeless and you're not going to be lacking in, in basic healthcare. People will strive to make their lives better on top of that. So you'll still have the ambition, I think, in society. Yes. Now I can see that's a privileged position to be in when you can try to make your life better. But if we can only all start with that baseline of just having food and healthcare and a place to live, then we can dare to dream. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if you live the life you really want. You know, your dream life. Have you ever taken time to picture what it would look like? I mean, what it would really look like? We're not talking about the life you feel you should have, but deep down, the life you secretly want. Your ideal life. Maybe you already have a vision. You wake up after a good night's sleep on the most comfortable mattress ever, with pillows that support your head just the way you like. You go to your organized closet and choose colorful, unique clothes that fit you and make you feel good. Then pad through a clean, warm, uncluttered home to the kitchen. Your refrigerator offers up the most delicious, healthy options for breakfast. And you have a day of unstructured time stretching ahead of you to do with as you like. But... That's never going to happen, right? Wouldn't it be nice to take a step back, sweep aside all your worries, and imagine that's where I come in? I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, and I've developed an exclusive questionnaire for the Also in Pink community to help you create a vision of your ideal life. Simply join the Also in Pink email list and you'll get instant access to our Ideal Lifestyle Vision questionnaire. Go on then. Make a cup of your favorite tea or whatever floats your boat. Go to alsoinpink.com and click Start Now. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. So getting back to the world of plants, is there an especially surprising or creepy planted bit you'd like to share? Some of them are very lighthearted. When pineapples were first grown in the United Kingdom, that was a real slog because they had to have heated greenhouses. So they burnt through coal and money trying to make this happen to get the pineapples to fruit in the 18th century. And when they finally did, these things were so expensive that nobody could afford to eat them. <laughs> And instead, they rented them out and took them to parties as a sort of status symbol. The way that uh, people nowadays would take a little dog in a handbag or something is a, sort of, uh, yes. a little talking point. <laughs> and then the Japanese lacquer tree has a much creepier story, which is that um, you're probably uh, familiar with lacquer, which is this amazing material made out of the sap of the Japanese lacquer tree. 
painted in layers and layers and layers. And, you know, before the time of plastics, this material would have been the most amazing thing because it was waterproof and plastic-like long before, hundreds of years before plastics were invented. But the the sap from this tree and the bark are, are rather poisonous and irritant. And this group of Japanese monks who used to make a tea out of the bark and and then drink it, and they would become sort of gradually mummified while they were alive oh. and their their skin would become more and more sort of plasticky oh my gosh and when they died their bodies were so poisonous that flies wouldn't be able to lay their eggs in the corpses oh. you did ask for creepy and when they were dug up after you know i think three years after they were dug up if the body hadn't decomposed then this was the sort of path to instant Buddhahood. Oh. And uh, this was only outlawed sort of end of the 19th century. But that's a pretty creepy example of how people use plants. That is extraordinary. It seems like the stuff of science fiction, really. Just in terms of pure decoration, plants have been very fashionable in recent years. And I'm fully on board with the indoor plant craze and have my own um, indoor jungle goals, you could call them. So currently 20 plants and counting. Wow, what sort of things have you got? Oh, all sorts. In this room, I have a giant elephant ear in my little studio here, which is wonderful. And I hadn't realized how potentially dangerous as well when I was chopping off a couple of these big leaves and I didn't wear gloves or anything and I happened to get some of the sap. I got it on my hands and I had this incredible itching and it took a while for that to go away. I knew you weren't supposed to eat it but I didn't realize that it would have such an effect. So Yeah, either something eats plants or something eats something else that eats plants because it's only plants that can photosynthesize. It's only plants that can make the food that animals need. So they are just lunch sitting there, and they've had to develop a ton of different ways to defend themselves. So they have spines, they have spikes, they have poisons, they have things that modify the behavior of things that would like to come and eat them. They camouflage themselves, they disguise themselves as something that's really unpleasant. They just do all of those things, you know, brilliantly. And, uh, you know, when you look at a tree that's there for maybe a thousand years, and manages not to be eaten in all that time, while the things that would eat it have gone through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of generations of evolution, and yet still they haven't evolved to eat the tree. I mean, it's just astonishing. It is astonishing. I've always enjoyed nature, but I think somehow creating a space, even if you don't have an outdoor garden, to create your own green space is just so appealing. And I think the pandemic has also really highlighted the importance of nature this past year. And several months ago, I took part in a survey exploring happiness and the lockdown and how much time people are spending outdoors, which I think is an interesting connection. But how about you? Have you had any kind of lockdown realization that's changed your perspective or your priorities? I think I've realized, along with perhaps everyone else, just how much people matter. You know, the sort of physicality of being with people, the hug, the body language, the being able to talk to each other without the delay of Zoom. I've also thought about how much nature matters. And it's interesting that you mentioned pot plants. I think there's something really important about nurturing something else. And when we've been rather isolated, I think that people have turned both to pets 
and to pot plants for the feeling of nurturing something and also the feeling of having a little control over something else and looking after something that is beyond oneself. I think those are important things. Those are my realizations, I think. I hadn't thought of the control aspect of it, but any way you control your environment, whether it's tidying your home or doing a bit of painting or putting plants in it, you create this lovely space for yourself to live in, which can affect so many things, your general well-being. For me, I think, you know, when I look at pot plants in particular, the plants around the home or perhaps garden plants, there's part of me that travels vicariously through them, you know, because these plants have come a long way. They've come from other parts of the world. They're immigrants, you know, those plants. And my family were immigrants here, especially when I'm locked down and I desperately want to travel. And I think about all those fantastic expeditions I've been on with Kew and other botanical organizations. And I look at those plants and I imagine the worlds they've come from. And in happier times, when there's no pandemic, I think that's about people. You know, I live in London, which has people from everywhere in the world. And I think about those places they've come from, countries in Africa and South Asia and South America is wonderful. But of course, I haven't been able to do that. And so I've been living vicariously, I think, through the plants instead of the people. I realize more and more that life is about storytelling, whether it's plants or writing a novel, editing a podcast or creating social media content, filmmaking, teaching, anything and everything you communicate is really storytelling and a skill we all develop in our ways. And you and your wife, novelist Tracy Chevalier, both have your bestsellers now. So yours is your previous book to this one, Around the World in 80 Trees. And Tracy's is, of course, Girl with a Pearl Earring. So um, do you offer feedback on one another's writing or <laughs> how does that work? <laughs> Gosh, absolutely not, Alexandria. We have a, um, I'm glad to say, a very sort of happy relationship. And I know that if we offered each other feedback on our books, that happiness would come to a, a sudden and jarring halt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the sort of signs of being a grown-up is being not defensive about criticism and being able to, yes. you know, to, to hear someone <laughs> say, do you know, Jonathan, actually, this is great, but, you know, that's not so good and maybe you should change it and so on. And I'd love to say I'm grown up enough to accept that from my wife, but I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, and frankly, she isn't grown up enough to accept that from me. However, I am grown up enough to accept it from almost anyone else. <laughs> and happily so, <laughs> but not her. Ah. <laughs> oh. Well, at least you both know that and can live on those terms. I think that means something too. <laughs> yeah, her mission in life is to say, do you know, Jonathan, this is just one of the best things I've ever read. <laughs> and that's my mission as well with her books is to say, God, I knew you were a great writer, Tracy, but this is just even more magnificent than I could possibly have imagined. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yes, that's the praise we all need. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering... Aside from your upcoming book launch, what are you excited about right now? What are you looking forward to this year? Oh, looking forward to uh, having my second vaccine, which Ooh. will be in about half an hour's time. Amazing. Looking forward to seeing friends and having convivial dinners with bottles of wine and sitting around a table and laughing. I'm excited about uh, some of the organizations I work with. So one of them is Raspberry Pi, which makes little tiny, very cheap computers. And we encourage children all over the world to learn programming. We've just sold our 
39 millionth computer. Oh, wow. I'm interested in the Cambridge University Botanic Garden, where I'm on the board, the Cambridge Science Centre, where we get uh, kids doing hands-on science. There's a sort of theme here. And I'm going to try and do another book, I think. Because if if you do three books, then you can call yourself an author. Is that what Tracy says, or is that? No, uh, I mean she was an author. The moment she put pen to paper, she's a proper professional. But I still feel I'm a dilettante. I'm not quite sure what the next one's going to be, but I probably not around the world in eighty something else. But I hope something (laughs) that will entwine science and culture and history and folklore and so on again. Oh, that sounds wonderful! I look forward to that, and. Yeah, as someone who's so active when it comes to the environment and the plant world and wildlife, and there are so many ways to get involved, but what's one thing, what's something we could all do to be part of the solution and protect our world? Okay, so I think there are several things that you can do. One is join an environmental organization. It's not about the money, though the money is helpful. It's actually about lending your voice. And an organization that has hundreds of thousands or millions of followers and members will be much more powerful in terms of lobbying governments and so on than an organization with tens of thousands. So please join an environmental organization wherever you live. And, you you know, there are plenty of them that you can join, whether it's the WWF or the Woodland Trust or whatever. You'll know in your own country which one you can join. In terms of your own behavior, One of the things that really makes the most difference is moving towards a plant-based diet. And, you know, we don't all have to become vegans and vegetarians overnight. But just wherever you are on the continuum between having, you know, meat meals three times a day, every day, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all the way to being vegan at the other end of the scale, just move yourself along that continuum, right, towards being more plant-based. You know, make sure that you have lots of plant-based meals and make them social so you learn how to cook vegetarian and vegan food. Now, the reason for this is that more than three quarters of the soy, more than three quarters of the maize, that's corn, that we grow is fed to animals. And that's a terribly inefficient way of feeding ourselves. I mean, massively, massively inefficient. And it uses up an enormous amount of land, which was once forests, and once was biodiverse, and once was storing carbon. So that is one of the things that we can absolutely do. And another one that we should be doing is wherever we can, avoid using fossil fuels. So it's absolutely not enough just to do carbon offsetting, just to say, oh, I'll plant a little tree and that'll make me feel less guilty about sort of taking flights and and all of those things. (laughs) It just doesn't work. The oil companies would love you to believe that it'll work and that's good enough. I'm afraid it isn't. Switch your energy supplier to a renewable one. Certainly in European countries, we can do this very easily and it doesn't cost much more. Don't keep buying things that you don't need, you know, because all the production of, of goods and, and transportation of goods depends on fossil fuels. You know, all these things make a difference. Fly less. And if you're up to it, do some flight shaming, not in a horrible way, but, you know, just when people brag about how they've just been on a long flight, just make it clear that it's not actually something you approve of, because that can really make a difference to people's behavior. And I just wonder in terms of diet, so in moving more towards a plant-based diet, do you think 
the ideal future would involve not eating animals at all? Or will that always be part of our culture, but just to a, a lesser degree? I think that what we're going to move towards, we'll have to move towards, is a diet which just has a lot less meat in it. So if we were just having as a sort of maximum, I don't know, one meat meal per week, that's probably sustainable. Yes, and I like that approach as well, because I think you certainly don't need meat all the time, but it would be lovely to enjoy it as an occasional special treat and enjoy food in all of its many forms, but in a way that's more sustainable. Yeah, one of the things that I had to learn, you know, I'm not completely vegetarian, but I've just tried to have much more vegetarian food in my diet. A, I feel healthier, but I definitely needed time to learn how to cook vegetarian food. You know, if you haven't grown up with it, it's not immediately sort of easy. And that's why I suggest sort of make it social. So invite people around and have a potluck. You know, everyone brings a dish and then you can sort of work out well, what's worked and what hasn't. And you can learn from each other. And, you know, the more that you make these things social, the more they'll catch on. Very true. And there's so many wonderful chefs like Otto Lenghi, who's very popular in this country, who are masters of vegetarian cooking and meat-based dishes too. So I think there's a lot of inspiration out there. Do you have a top resource for that, for vegetarian cooking? I think Otto Lenghi's great. I have this wonderful little box of, of index cards that my mother had. Oh. <laughs> it's the most valuable thing that she left me when she died, actually, her recipes. And because it's completely of another generation, there's much more obscure recipes than you would find nowadays. Like there's potato pie, which sounds a bit dull, but it's got lots of mushrooms and spice and things in it. And it's absolutely great. And you'd never find that nowadays. Sounds great. Yeah. Do you have any kind of lifestyle philosophy or mantra that helps you hashtag live your best life? People matter. Environment matters. Money is only a means to an end. And if one can live by a, a balance between learning, earning and doing good, I think that is a good way to live. And I think that Tracy, when she came on your your show. <laughs> she said, learning, earning and doing good. And I just want to tell you, that was my idea. I got there first. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it matters. In fact, we, we really want to start a movement. So I should be pleased that people are copying the idea. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's in, in the end, if you think, well, what is life for? I think we should all be trying to leave the world in a slightly better place than when we found it. That's my feeling. And do you have any kind of daily habit or ritual that brings you joy? Yes, I do crosswords. The thing about doing cryptic crosswords, which are these sort of British-style difficult crosswords, getting to the answer is like a detective process. I find that they stop me thinking about anything else at all when I'm trying to do that. I do a little bit of crossword every day, and it's almost like a kind of meditation, really. Some other things that I would recommend in terms of tips for living well would be, you know, try to enjoy buying, preparing, eating and sharing real food. Never buy ready prepared meals would be one of my mantras. Don't have margarine, have good butter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I'm with you on that. I remember my mother at the age of about 85 when I said, you know, would margarine be better for you? She looked at me and said, a little bit of what you fancy does you good. You know, butter is better. Make cooking itself social was another thing that I think is really helpful. One of my other life hacks, I've had to travel a lot. 
you know, with work, with expeditions and things. And when you're going, you know, to somewhere that is maybe a desert or a jungle or, or somewhere that's very different and you need to be actually working in that place, it's really worthwhile spending the time packing well, you know, to pack properly. So separate containers for things properly labelled. Take more plastic bags than you think you'll ever need because plastic bags, we're talking about reusing things again and again, so I'm not guilty. <laughs> they not only keep out moisture, but they keep out dust. And the work I do, I'm often taking camera equipment and recording equipment and so on. So plastic bags, tins, Tupperware boxes, fantastic. But Tupperware oh. boxes that have corners rather than the rounded sort because they are not an efficient use of space. <laughs> oh, very good. So you have a fair bit in common with Marie Kondo then, <laughs> in terms of organising. Only on that level, because the way I like to live, I mentioned earlier that I like juxtapositions between things and the most interesting things happen at the boundaries. And I surround myself with lots and lots and lots of things. I am, you know, an absolute nightmare for this movement of kind of having nothing in your life and simplifying everything. You know, wherever I look around my office at the moment, I've just got tons of stuff, little things that remind me of an experience somewhere, a seed, a branch, a crystal ball someone gave me, a spoon that is made out of some funny metal that when you dip it in your tea, it ties itself in a knot, a kaleidoscope, a bust of me that a child made out of plasticine when she was about seven, tiles, books. Uh, it's just absolutely crammed with books and papers and, and all sorts. And when I need ideas, I come into this space and I think, ah, this is inspirational. <laughs> You have more in common than you think with Marie Kondo, since it's not a minimalist movement at all. It's about just surrounding yourself with things that bring you joy, essentially, and doesn't matter how many you have. So if it's achieving that, I think that's the important distinction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'd misunderstood. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. So, yes, it's, I mean, it's full of things that give me joy. But the trouble is that you never know what's going to bring you joy in the future. So I never get rid of anything. Ah. There, there are things that I never thought, well, that's going to bring me joy. But then, you know, when I put it next to something completely different, the combination of that thing with that other thing suddenly does bring me joy. And I wouldn't have been able to predict that. So I hang on to a lot of stuff. Oh, interesting. Well, we could do a whole podcast episode just based around this idea, I think. <laughs> hey, maybe I could start a movement. The Jonathan Drury movement for never throwing anything away. <laughs> I think you have to work on your branding a little bit, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> I could just call it clutter. <laughs> clutter. Oh, that has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? I can <laughs> yeah. see a Netflix series coming out. I'm not sure it's a positive ring. <laughs> it's memorable, which is the main thing. So my other life hack <laughs> is when I'm traveling, I'm often going to places that are quite hot. And therefore, in Europe, I would normally wear a jacket of some kind into which I can put things in the pockets. But if you're going to a hot place, I really like shirts that have chest pockets that shut so that you can carry your passport and valuables somewhere where they're not going to get lost or stolen. I mean, they do slightly give you man boobs. <laughs> but you know, my Paramo shirt that is unrippable and indestructible with its fantastic breast pockets. I wouldn't be without it. So we've entered fashion territory as well. I like that we got a bit of style in there, John. 
Yeah, I'm so glad that you call it style and fashion. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that anyone else would when they see me. But, you know, one of the things I like is to have really battered clothing that I've lived in and, and that when I put it on, I, I'm reminded of all the sort of wonderful experiences or scary experiences that I've, I've had in that clothing. So again, it comes full circle to telling a story like the plants and everything else. On that note, we've come to the finale. So I have a few quick fire questions for you to end the show. Okie dokie. So first off, what's your most treasured possession? And of course, no judgment. I think my most treasured possession is a coin that I have from the Bar Kokhba revolt which was the Jewish revolt against the Romans in the early decades of the Common Era, so around 50 to 100 AD. And uh, I think about my ancestors with that coin and uh, the line between them and me. And, and I think that's probably the most treasured possession I have. I, mean, I also have my son's first pair of shoes, <laughs> which are tiny and very, oh. very cute. And that makes me smile quite a lot. And, and I suppose my other one is that I have a fossil plant from the Carboniferous era about 360 million years ago. I sort of look at that. Uh, it's one of those stones that you kind of pull apart and then you see this amazing thing inside it. And that's quite special too. What a wonderfully diverse collection of treasures. And what's your favourite article of clothing or accessory in your current wardrobe? Well, it would be my Paramo breast-pocketed shirt into which I can stuff passport, valuables and everything else in a hot country where I don't want to wear a jacket and they won't get lost or stolen and it's kind of indestructible. So yeah, a shirt with breast pockets. And where do you go to get inspired? I would ideally go to the top of a hill. Looking down on clouds and birds is an amazing thing to give literally a different perspective. Otherwise, botanic gardens for the vicarious thrill I have with all those plants that have come from different parts of the world. And if I can't have that, then a library, you know, just the, the juxtaposition of books in a library is something that I really enjoy. And speaking of books, what's one book or resource you'd recommend for everyone? Um, I'd like to recommend a novel by Otto Pasolinen called The Year of the Hare, the hare of like a rabbit, not hair on your head. <laughs> and it's a Finnish book. Uh, translated into English. And it's funny, and it's ironic, and it's optimistic, and it has a kind of wonderful philosophy of life in it, but it is laugh out loud funny. I'll just give away a tiny bit of the plot, which is that there's a photographer and a journalist who are out driving home, and just on the edge of the forest, a hare runs out in front of the car, and they just clip the, the back leg of the hare. One of them gets out of the car to make sure the hare is all right. Uh, it is all right. And uh, he pops the hair into his jacket and walks into the forest. And the rest of the book is about what happens to him. And uh, it is absolutely delightful. And, you know, I can't recommend it highly enough. The Year of the Hair. And what would you say you're grateful for? It's a very KonMari question for you. Health, friends, nice wine living in a country with proper beer and nice pubs, <laughs> having the excuse to travel, all of those things, I think. And finally, what do you love most about life? Variety, warm people, novelty. Well, John, thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure chatting with you about 
all these wonderful things and the creepy world of plants and stories they tell. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I hope that if you read Around the World in 80 Plants, I hope you love it and enjoy it and tell all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, note to listeners, please do. <laughs> you enjoyed that chat with Jonathan Drury and check out his latest book Around the World in 80 Plants. It's hot off the press and full of lovely illustrations and engaging stories. So here's some key takeaways from our conversation. There's a lot about getting environmentally active. Here's some things you can do. One, make your voice heard and join an environmental organization. Two, move towards a plant-based diet. That doesn't mean going full-on vegan, but see if you can incorporate more plant-based meals in your week. Think of meat more as a special treat. Three, in an effort to avoid fossil fuels, here are some things you can do. Switch your energy supplier to a renewable one. Don't keep buying things that you don't need or things that aren't in line with your vision for how you want to live. And try to fly less post-pandemic. Also, be open to opportunities that life gives you. If you have access to healthcare, enough food to eat, and a roof over your head, what's next? You're in a privileged position to be able to dare to dream. That's our show then. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Alexandria and this is Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to Also in Pink wherever you get your podcasts. And the absolute best way to show your support is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. This really helps more than anything to promote the show. And of course, tell all your friends. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, have a wonderful week. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. <laughs>